0: Welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. I'm Amy O'Neill Houck. In this podcast from Edible Communities, a network of magazines published in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, we celebrate all things local and sustainable in the food world. This episode is brought to you by American Farmland Trust, the founder of the 15th annual America's Farmer's Market Celebration. Each summer, AFMC brings together thousands of supporters nationwide to celebrate local food, agriculture, and community. Support your favorite farmer's market as it competes for state, regional, and national awards. Voting runs from June 19th to September 18th at markets.farmland.org. Today, we're speaking with Lisa Held. Lisa is Civil Eats senior staff reporter. Since 2015, She has reported on agriculture and the food system with an eye towards sustainability, equality, and health, and her stories have appeared in publications including The Guardian, The Washington Post, and Mother Jones. In the past, she covered health and wellness and was an editor at Well and Good. She's based in Baltimore and has a master's degree from Columbia University's School of Journalism. Recently, Edible Communities and Civil Eats partnered to produce a series of pieces that are available for the network of more than 70 local, independent edible publications to use in print. Lisa is the author of two recent stories, Biochar's Big Carbon-Rich Moment, and Can Farming with Trees Save the Food System? We'll discuss both today. They cover agriculture innovations that are at once ancient and modern, agroforestry and biochar. We'll take a look at these techniques and talk about what promise and challenges they hold for farmers adapting to the climate crisis. Lisa, welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. Thank you,
1: Amy. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Great. Well, let's start with biochar. What is it and what's its history in agriculture?
1: Sure. So Biochar is essentially a fo- a form of charcoal. It's pretty simple. Like a lot of things we talk about in agriculture that sound kind of techy, um it's it's usually a little bit more basic than than we realize. Um so it's you basically start out with some kind of biomass, usually wood, branches, um pieces of trees. It could be things like corn stalks or peanut shells, um kind of the remnants of things that we've grown, and you burn it. And instead of um, just letting the wood, let's say burn until it's completely gone and is a pile of ashes, you burn it in this controlled way where it's deprived of oxygen and you end up with these little pieces of charcoal or biochar. And, and it's essentially a stable form of carbon that's left over and, and, um, that's why we're talking about it, right? Because um, we're in the middle of a climate crisis and we're looking for ways to take carbon out of the air and put it back into the soil. And so biochar can be created and then added back to soil where um, it can stay stable for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, depending on the conditions. Uh, we need more research on that. We can talk about that later. Um, but yeah, and... and In terms of the history, so my reporting didn't get too far into the history, but um, when you talk to experts, generally they say the practice of of adding charcoal to soil can be traced back about 2,500 years to the Amazon Basin in Brazil. And indigenous civilizations there used it to create fertile soils. And um, there are other places in South America and West Africa where populations used it in similar ways. So it is um, a fairly ancient practice that is just now getting more and more attention in American agriculture. And just
0: how is it different from, say, a charcoal briquette that you'd buy in the grocery store? Or is it?
1: <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a, it's actually a hard question to answer. Like, I don't know on a molecular level exactly how those briquettes are, are created or... Um, how different it is! Um, I would say, you know, it's probably not a good idea to just start adding like charcoal briquettes to your to your garden. Um, I think it is different and and it's created in in more specific ways, but it, but essentially, it's it's the same idea um, at at its core. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I guess that the, it's not just like what's left over in your fireplace or your barbecue pit afterwards. So you wouldn't be just adding ash, for instance, that's different from that. So I'm just curious about, are people using it on really small scales? Is this something industrial or are backyard gardeners doing it too?
1: It's both. So so most biochar in the country right now is made as a byproduct of energy production in biomass energy plants. So these are places where basically things like we were talking about before, like wood um, that is left over is used to create energy and then biochar is a byproduct and, and it's sold and, and used for industrial purposes but there are plenty of um, backyard gardeners who make it themselves you can um, you can go on YouTube and just search biochar and there's lots of videos of like homesteaders who um, have systems they've created with a series of barrels and they show you how to do it and Um, so, so it is a little bit of both. I would say in terms of gardeners, it's, there are some people who I talk to in my reporting who are very passionate about it. There's one gardener in Pennsylvania who, um, has been making it for decades and uses it for a million different things and is very passionate about it. But I think those people are, are, enthusiastic, but rare. Like I don't think the average gardener really has started using this yet, mainly because it is still kind of um, mysterious to most people. And there isn't a lot of information on exactly what to do with it and how it will affect your plants and your soil.
0: So you just mentioned biomass energy plants, which is not something that really comes up a lot when you hear about the and different kinds of energy that we're producing. We're talking about Coal-fired plants ramping down and natural gas maintaining or ramping up, and all these things that people are juggling to try and um, reduce the carbon and the greenhouse gases. So, why aren't we hearing about biomass energy? What, it, where, how does that come into play?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I'm not an energy reporter. I'm an agriculture reporter, and I don't actually know that much about biomass energy as a as a topic. But in in just looking into this, I, I would say it's a very small percentage of um, energy production in this country. And I think um, part of it is that it's expensive. And natural gas production, for example, is a lot cheaper. And has I think there was a moment where maybe biomass was going to be a bigger portion of our energy. And um, it was, it seems like it was maybe displaced by um, lower cost um, fossil fuels, like natural gas. So um, it's not a very significant um, proportion of our energy. And it doesn't, I mean, you know, I cover climate in the context of the food system. So again, I'm not like tracking this closely, but it's not something you ever hear about as like, we should be doing more of this. (laughs) Like, I, I really... Almost never heard about it until I just was doing this reporting on biochar.
0: That's kind of what I was wondering, like, is is it something where you feel like the momentum is building or it's no? Yeah. Interesting. In your piece, you mentioned that one of the big challenges to seeing the benefits of biochar technology is scale. And I guess the biomass energy comes into play a little bit there, but both about how to produce enough of the material and how to foster adoption by farmers. So what would help the most to further biochar's use as a soil builder
1: and a carbon catcher? Sure. So in the U.S., we're we're not producing a lot. That's, you know, the, the first thing. So um, the U.S. Biochar Initiative gave me some numbers and they had these estimates. There's about 150 commercial producers in the country and they create between 70 and 100,000 tons per year. And that sounds like a lot, but um, Project Drawdown's estimates on how to make a climate impact with biochar are based on using 63 million tons at a minimum. <laughs> so, you know, 100,000 versus 63 million is a pretty big gap. Those are estimates that there aren't great numbers. That's another issue. Um, the, that same organization, the U.S. Biochar Initiative, they're working now on trying to uh, do better at collecting data on where it's actually being created and, and how much is being created. But we like there's definitely no getting around the fact that if we want to be adding it to more soil and storing carbon this way, it needs to scale up exponentially. Um, and that will require a lot of money and a lot of infrastructure and then there's the the issue of if we had all of this, then like using it at scale, right? Like adding it to agricultural soils. And I think the big challenge there is on the research side. So I mentioned earlier, like a gardener might not know what to do with it. And I think at this point, most farmers don't know what to do with it either. And there's there there is a growing body of research, but we need a lot more information on exactly how it impacts different kinds of soil in different places in the country, according to climate, according to what you're growing. So, you know, if you're growing corn in Iowa or you have an apple orchard in New York, or you have, you know, almonds in California, like how adding biochar to your soil might impact how those plants grow is going to be different. And so um, we need a lot more place-specific research. I also think uh, going back to production for a second, like a lot of the production, as we said, so far on the commercial side has been like associated with biomass energy. And one of the places I think is the most interesting in terms of scale is producing it on a smaller scale regionally. So I, I in my reporting, I talked to a lot of people in uh, forestry in places like Montana and Colorado, who are coming at this as a means of controlling wildfires in those places, because they, they have to thin out the forests um, in this way that results in these piles, basically piles of Debris and it's branch you know branches, twigs, very small trees, these kinds of um, forest materials that fuel uncontrolled burning um, when wildfires happen. So they thin them out and and what they've been doing mostly is then just setting them on fire, and that's basically just releasing all that carbon dioxide into the air and so um, the reporting I did they you know they were working on this project where they're bringing in this machine into those. Forests and doing, you know, creating biochar on site, and then they're going to move that to local farms. And so it's like bigger scale than a backyard homesteader, but smaller scale than this big commercial plant. And I think that's kind of an interesting place um, where we might see a lot of growth because uh, there is like the material already exists and it needs to go somewhere and um so i it seemed like there there we might see a lot of growth in that realm specifically
0: and this was a national forest that you were talking about and uh, have you found or did you find that any other forests or or any other areas regions are interested in doing something similar or is are they pretty much piloting this test and then hopefully they'll spread the word
1: Um, I think, I mean, I, I talked to, um, foresters in two states, Montana and Colorado. And I do think, like, the researcher in Colorado was part of, um, USDA forest agency. And so I think, I do think there is a lot of conversations happening among people who do that kind of work around the country. And, you know, even like the, the guy in Montana that, he had a person from Oregon who had the biochar machine come from there, who was using it there to, to bring it to him. And so there, it's definitely happening in different parts of the country. And I, I do think, I think like of all the sort of worlds where people are talking about biochar, like you hear, you hear about it a lot in agriculture, but in forestry, it seems like maybe even um, more of a, a kind of percolating conversation.
0: So... Uh, a regional approach to scale that's not huge, so that we're not transporting these giant big amounts of material across country and creating more carbon dioxide in that way. And perhaps the local or regional organizations already have connections with one another where they can communicate and spread the word between forestry and farm. That would be interesting to see. You mentioned a few challenges uh, in using biochar as a farmer. For instance, you said that the size of the piece can really affect how much carbon it might capture or how long that might last. And then also it captures nitrogen as well, which could potentially deplete the nitrogen in the soil. Are any of these downsides overshadowing the optimism about biochar?
1: I don't think they're overshadowing it. I think uh, it just points, like I said, to the need for more um, kind of targeted research so that we understand exactly how to use it. Because yeah, the nitrogen thing is really interesting. One of the reasons people want to add it to soil is because nitrogen runoff from farm fields is a really big problem in a lot of uh, farm states and leads to water pollution. And so it it can biochar can help do this amazing thing, which is hold on to excess nitrogen and prevent water pollution. So that's good. But then it's like, well, if you add too much, is it going to steal nitrogen that the plants need, not the excess, but the those nitrogen that that you're you're putting in your soil specifically to, to make your plants grow? And I but I I don't think that's a downside. I think it's really just a matter of determining exactly what that number is, like how much where you know, how to how to um really understand how to use it. And most of the challenges are like that. It's like scale and and research and I, I can't really think of a downside That doesn't seem like it could be solved by just, you know, a little bit more funding or or research, really.
0: Well, and again, that seems like an area where regionality could really come into play because my soil in Alaska is not going to be anything like soil in Colorado. And so there's going to be differences in how it's applied. Can you talk a little bit about the capacity of biochar to store moisture in soil for areas that are
1: experiencing drought? Yeah. There's, there's very good research on its ability to help soils hang on to moisture. And it's, it's all about the, you know, the particles are just like filled with all these little nooks and crannies. And so the, the water just basically has a place to hang out, it seems like. And, um, there yeah well in in my reporting i i think that was that was one of the strongest sort of benefits that has been identified so far is that um in the west especially in places where farmers really need access to technologies that will hold water in their fields um this could be a potential a potential tool that they could use and it and it like we said earlier you know it sticks around for a long time so maybe you add it and it It provides that benefit for many years. Um, Hmm. Again, it's like we need more research because what happens then if you till the soil? Does that disrupt that benefit? Or so there's still a lot of questions. But um, I think the potential for for it to help farmers who um, are struggling with water access is is really big.
0: Have we seen its application used more in situations like no-till farming or you know those kinds of practices that are Sort of leaning towards, or leaning away, maybe more accurately from what we call conventional farming.
1: We haven't really seen its application anywhere. Okay. (laughs) So, so the the funny thing about this is, it's like everybody's talking about biochar. It's it's got like all this, you know, all this funding um, from the government is flowing towards research, and um, but there is very little. um, There's very little data. At the farm level of like, this is how farmers are using it. And I can point to like, you know, here's this place in the country where they're really seeing benefits. It's it's only really been done in like research plots. And so, yeah, I don't I think like we're we're talking about this at a time when it's just really early and we don't have those answers yet. That's exciting.
0: So in your second piece on farming with trees, we have a few potentially unfamiliar ideas. So can we start by defining agroforestry and its related sil- systems like silvopasture, riparian buffer, and alley cropping?
1: Sure. I mean, agroforestry is is really, it sounds very technical, just like biochar, and it's so simple. Like, that's why I kind of, I kind of put in the piece, like, Agroforestry or just call it farming with trees. Like we're we're it's so simple, but we're we're so used to you think of a farm, you picture a farm and it's just endless fields and there's really often maybe like a couple trees around, you know, the edge, but otherwise it's just cleared out. And the idea with agroforestry, it's just bring back more trees and shrubs. So um having this term kind of allows you to then create really specific systems that you can apply. So silvopasture, I would say at this point is, um, the most, um, I don't know if it's the most popular. It's definitely the most, um, people are, are talking about it the most, I would say right now. And so silvopasture is a form of agroforestry where you graze livestock, um, instead of in a completely open pasture, you graze them among some combination of trees. Sometimes the trees are in rows, sometimes they're kind of more along the edges. Sometimes people create fences with the trees, um, which I've seen in person and it's very cool. And then alley cropping is another big one where this is where farmers plant trees in between rows of row crop, what we call row crops like corn or soybeans. Um, and then riparian buffers, they're actually very common and they're kind of thrown into this bucket of agroforestry. Um, but you know, a lot of farmers have been doing this for a long time. It's basically planting smaller trees and shrubs alongside waterways to prevent runoff from fields going into the waterway and then, you know, making its way to wherever, whether it's the Chesapeake Bay or the Gulf of Mexico and and causing, causing issues um, there. So yeah, it's just multiple different ways of kind of adding more trees and shrubs to farms. And it's this amazing thing because it's, it seems so intuitive but we've been doing it the other way for so long just clearing everything from the landscape and growing one thing or a couple things and you know we are not only in a climate crisis we're also in a biodiversity crisis and agroforestry is unique in that the more uh we do this the more we kind of start bringing back a little bit more of an ecosystem on a farm. And that can really help with biodiversity as well as, you know, trees store a ton of carbon.
0: That I was just made a note to ask you about pollinators. Is there data about agroforestry and pollinators and how they might be in synergy?
1: Definitely. I mean, that's, um, pollinator habitat is like one of the main reasons a lot of farmers are into planting like, um, hedgerows, which is like, I mean, there's all these terms. It's like a hedgerow is basically a riparian buffer, but not maybe not along water. It's just planting more shrubs on your farm. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's anytime you bring back like a bio, like the diversity of plants like that, you're going to just be creating, um, Habitat for pollinators and and that's a really big deal I, I I don't know like about specific research studies on that, but just like based on the way that we know um, agriculture and, and pollinator habitat works it's it's going to definitely provide a benefit
0: and these techniques are pretty ancient, right, so why were they abandoned?
1: Well, um, (laughs) production. So I, um, yeah, so, so Native American tribes used a lot of techniques that, uh, we would now call agroforestry. Um, they, a lot of times it's referred to as forest farming and, you know, they use controlled burning a lot, which, which, you know, basically using fire to, uh, clear out parts of forests or like the understory within a forested area and then maintaining the larger ecosystem while still growing food and foraging. And so a lot of indigenous cultures kind of understood that that was a better way to do things because you were preserving that larger ecosystem. And I mean, in the US, European settlers arrived and basically clear cut Forests. They just, you know, cut everything down, and and there was this, there was, and still is this idea that, you know, you can, you should just plant as much as possible, um, as densely as possible, on whatever land you have, and and that's going to produce the most food at the most profit. But I think now um, people are, are seeing that that produces a lot of impacts that um, are detrimental to the environment and to humans, because we depend on that environment. And yeah, and so now, you know, there's this kind of um, recognition that that was probably not the best way to go. And uh, we need to start uh, building some of it back. We're never going to, I mean, the, the depressing part is, you know, there's, the, the farm that I was at uh, in Pennsylvania it was in this area called the Great Eastern Woodlands. Those are never coming back. We're never going to have that landscape again. But um, we can at least try to build slightly mo- more diverse systems. And um, that, I think, will have a really big impact.
0: I'm curious, as governments and nonprofits are ramping up funding for agroforestry, are they looking to Indigenous knowledge bears for leadership and expertise?
1: Um, I, I wish they were doing that more. Um, in in my research I found um some great work happening in Northern California where some um tribes were partnering and leading some agroforestry work. There are so so the USDA has this program called the Climate Smart Commodity Program that I mentioned in in this story, and they're giving a lot of money. I think it's $3 billion total um, to different climate smart farming projects. And a lot of them are focused on agroforestry. And several of those agroforestry projects do have tribal partners involved, um, which is great to see. But I, yeah, it's not, I, I think, you know, overall, it would be great to see more recognition of, of that um history and that work and and um yeah have more um more tribal organizations that are really really leading on this and and more funding flowing to those projects
0: in your story you quote Keith Keeley, executive director of the Savannah Institute, as saying, farmers are stewards of photosynthesis, one of our oldest and best technologies for getting carbon out of the atmosphere. And that quote stood out to me because it seems like for a few generations, at least, what we call conventional farming has been, unwitting or not, party to resource extraction that is taking from the soil and not stewarding it. Keeley seems to Keely's perspective, it kind of seems to share what Tim Souter takes when he says his pastureland wants to be a forest. He's kind of giving that that pasture its own voice, which I think is a very cool way of putting it. Do you think there's a wider shift in perspective towards stewardship happening? That's a tough question. I
1: think, I I guess, you know, the fact that Keith Keely was at a USDA conference. So that conference where I quoted him from is, is USDA's sort of big event of the year where they have like all of the biggest players in commodity agriculture and, um, the big meat companies and, and everyone basically in that room talking about how to grow food in, in the U S and I think the fact that any of this is being talked about is a really big shift. Um, So for instance, I covered, um, agriculture, um, during the last administration and that same event, the USDA, uh, annual event, the Trump administration's USDA actually didn't use the word climate change. They, they actually didn't even say it. (laughs) Um, so to, you know, you, I, I guess like there is a shift in like now, now we're talking about, we have these climate smart grants. We have- um, this overall recognition that we need to be thinking about the climate crisis in terms of farming and not just in terms of both making farms resilient and then also reducing emissions from farms. And that is, that is fairly new and it it is a shift. It's like, I, I don't think a lot of farmers are thinking the way that Tim Sauter is thinking at Fiddle Creek Dairy and he is, you know kind of seeing his role as this steward of the land and of uh, and kind of of his animals and his role in feeding people there are lots of farmers who feel that way but the forces that support or i guess <laughs> don't support them uh there they're I yeah, I, I think that there's still more um they're still facing more obstacles than they are facing support in general and more money is flowing to things that are not beneficial and are, you know, increasing greenhouse gas emissions <laughs> versus this kind of thing we're talking about.
0: Lisa, I'm curious about the idea of regenerative farming and how these two things, biochar and agroforestry, uh, are maybe fitting into it in the fu- now or in the future. Is that something that you've come across at all in your reporting?
1: Sure. Um, regenerative agriculture is definitely um, the biggest buzzword in farming right now. Um, it, it has so many different meanings. It's hard to figure out how to talk about it. Some people talk about regenerative farming as you know simply adding cover crops or or doing no till on on corn and soybean acres, and that has benefits compared to not doing those things right um, but then you know there's there's also this thinking that regenerative farming should reduce or completely eliminate the use of pesticides and really focus on biodiversity and sort of real um, ecosystem benefits and, and a whole different approach to to the way we've been farming. I think um, the the kind of overlap where all people who talk about regenerative farming always kind of come together is that we should be thinking more about soil and improving soil instead of simply extracting from it as much as we can. And both of these practices are are kind of about that right like biochar um we're saying well if we add this to soil um you know we can hang on to water which which helps improve the quality of that soil we can um retain nutrients actually we didn't even talk about another thing that biochar does is provide more space for microbes which is huge for soil health Um, And then agroforestry, you know, same thing, like you're planting trees, you're increasing diversity and bringing all kinds of critters that weren't there before back to the farm, the pollinators, the birds. um, It's just everything is just bringing more biomass and more um, diversity, and that is going to benefit that soil. And so I do think both of these things fit no matter what your kind of approach to regenerative, both of these practices fit pretty squarely into it.
0: Yeah, I noticed that um, you left the term out of both stories and I thought that was probably an intentional omission because it does get diluted and maybe a little bit greenwashed, but it seems like an important idea or potentially important idea if we can land on um, some accepted tenets of it. Do you think or no?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think like, again, it's there, there's you can kind of see the good and then the the potential for it to be diluted. So it's like we weren't talking about regenerative agriculture 10 years ago. And, and that's a great thing that this is a, a movement towards paying more attention to soil and be being regenerative instead of extractive um, just that idea is pretty revolutionary compared to how we've been producing food in this country for the last several decades um, or really last hundred years. <laughs> and, you know, so that's good. And, and yeah, I, I think like a lot of people that I interview and talk to think that this is all positive, that any, you know, there's two ways of thinking about it, any, regen- any sort of benefit to soil um, no matter how small and especially like a lot of the smaller tweaks, you're doing them on big acres. So there might be benefit there. But then, you know, there's, there's the thinking that, well, if we start calling everything regenerative, then, you know, producers like Tim Souter, who has this tiny farm and he's producing like the highest quality milk you could ever produce and it's expensive and he's not going to be able to compete with, um, a farm that is, you know, just planting cover crops on a conventional dairy and also gets to call its practices mm-hmm. regenerative. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's, yeah, there's, it's, it's kind of a, a time where I think all of that is going to be debated a lot and and worked out. And you know, there's all kinds of certifications now that are going to, there, there's a few that already exist and now there's, there's more that are coming. <laughs> and So I don't know that it's going to get simpler, but, but i i do think it's a positive thing that that everyone is that not everyone but a lot of people are are, are talking about it.
0: Mhm. Okay, well let's talk about microbes for a second since you um brought that up. I imagine that the benefits for mycelium and microbes are are important for both biochar and agroforestry. What did you find?
1: That it's funny. I didn't actually, I, I don't know anything about microbes in agroforestry. That would be very interesting. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, that's, that's kind of cool. We should look into that. Um, but any, anytime you in, increase diversity, you're going to help more microbes thrive. And, um, so I, I can't imagine it, you know, it would be interesting to see some, some research on that, but, um, but yeah, biochar again, it goes back to, um, the, the little, um, spaces in the particles. There's just so, they're just so porous that you're just creating more places for microbes to live basically, which is very simple, but, um, that's, that's what, um, that's what's happening. And I, I think that there's some research that shows, um, benefits from adding biochar to the sort of microbial diversity. And I'm sure that will be another big focus of research going forward because, you know, a lot of the focus on the funding coming in now is on research. And I think all of these things that we're talking about are just going to like suddenly have like new, <laughs> new, new research on microbes, on water holding capacity, on nutrients. And um, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see to see that hopefully all <laughs> come to fruition.
0: <laughs> awesome. So, if you're paying attention at all these days to agriculture and food, you've probably heard something about the farm bill. So, how did these ideas of biochar and agroforestry fit into that
1: evolving legislation? Sure. My favorite topic is the Farm Bill. Um, I'm the only person who it's my favorite topic. (laughs) So (laughs) Great. I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is what I know know a lot about. Um, Yes. So the Farm Bill um, negotiations have kicked off. They've been a little stalled recently uh, because of the debt ceiling negotiations, but they are moving. And there are a couple ways in which this conversation fits in. To the farm bill. So the the first big one is conservation programs. So conservation is one of like the three biggest chunks of um, farm bill funding. And when we say conservation programs, I'm talking about programs that basically pay farmers to do things on their farm that improve environmental outcomes. So the two biggest are called EQIP and CSP, the conservation stewardship program. And depending on the program, depending on the farm, you know, you might. You could apply for an equip grant for something as simple as like building a fence in order to graze your cattle. Um, you know, there's there's a wide range. It could be for waste storage. It could be for cover crops. I've mentioned cover crops. Um, and so, but that's a lot of funding, and a lot of farmers use those programs. They're always oversubscribed, meaning more farmers want to participate than are able to get funding. And both of these things, so actually the USDA just proposed adding biochar as like an approved practice, Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was in 2020. It was fairly recent. So in some states, it is now possible for you to, as a farmer, apply to use biochar as a soil amendment and get funding for that. And um, same thing with agroforestry. There are a bunch of practices that are approved. It kind of depends on the state. Um, but in a lot of states, you could apply to plant trees in an alley cropping system or or uh, put in a lot of farmers use uh, equip for riparian buffers, for example. And so during the Farm Bill negotiations right now, there's a lot of talk about two things. One, increasing funding in conservation programs in general. There's also this big pot of money from the Inflation Reduction Act that is supposed to be used for conservation programs specifically related to climate. And so there's a lot of conversation around how is this money going to be used? How much money should we be putting into conservation programs? And at the end of the day, if, you know, more money gets put into those programs and more of that money goes to climate smart practices specifically, then that would potentially mean more money to farmers who want to use biochar and or put in agroforestry systems. So that's the biggest way. And then there's also just like little things. Um, So for instance, the biochar research network act, um, which I talk about in my story is a, what we call a marker bill. So basically it gets introduced during this process. And what they're hoping is that it'll get kind of tucked into the larger farm bill. And that would establish 20 research sites around the country to study biochar's use on farms and all these things we've been talking about, kind of study it in different sites with different soils and really kind of get answers to some of these questions. So those, yeah. The, and I, I don't think there's any specific marker bills on agroforestry, but again, I think like the, if you look at the list of like climate smart practices in conservation programs, there's just so many that, that fall under that umbrella that I do think it would add to farmers' ability to implement these systems if there was more money available.
0: And does it seem like these bills or additions are going to end up in the final product? It is too soon to
1: tell, unfortunately. <laughs>
0: um, what is the timeline? Anyway, this happens every
1: five years, right? It happens every five years. Technically, it's supposed to be... Um, like the September is, is when it should be done by it's not going to be done by September. Um, The leadership is still saying that they expect to see a bill by the end of the year. So we think that maybe um, by the end of the year, um, it's, like I said, it's like then these other things kind of come up and put like, uh, you know, a month ago I was like, oh yeah, things are moving. It's, it's, they're holding hearings. It's, and then this debt ceiling thing comes up and they just get, you know, Washington gets consumed by something else. So it, it's hard to know. Um, on the conservation program stuff, it's interesting because conservation programs in general are pretty popular from a, bi- like on a bipartisan basis, because, you know, you're, you're giving money to farmers. They're, you know, doing great work. Um, They're generally pretty supported by both parties, but this extra funding for climate smart work has been controversial. And some of the Republican leadership in the House, um, G.T. Thompson, who is the head of the House Agriculture Committee, for instance, has indicated that they might want to move that money and not have it be specifically for climate because they think that, Bit, you know that the the aims of conservation programs are larger, and that um, it should be for any environmental outcome, not just climate. So it's right now it's hard to know exactly what will happen, especially because you can kind of say, "Here's what the Democrats are saying, and here's what the House is saying, and the the Republicans are saying." The Republicans control the Ag Committee in the House, and the and the Democrats control it in the Senate. So um, hard to know exactly how it'll shake out mm-hmm. at this point. Fascinating,
0: Lisa. Uh, I'm curious since you've brought us two really interesting stories. What are you thinking about and working on
1: now? <laughs> so many things. Um, I yeah. I mean, I'm I'm always thinking about um, climate and agriculture and how how the food system needs to change in this, in this era we're living through um, and how it will change, how it will be changed um, and how we're going to continue to to grow food and, and feed people um, given this, this crisis that we're in. And I think, um, you know, I don't, I don't love the nitty gritty of policy stuff, but I cover it a lot because it's important and it's, you know, things, where things happen and, and a lot of money gets, gets, uh, given out and that determines a lot of things. And I think like right now it, it is an interesting time because they're like, we talked about, there's more attention to this world. And it's almost feels like a little bit of a pivotal moment where that attention could lead to, um, a lot of real change and a lot of like real, Funding going to good work and and you know reconsideration of the way that we've been doing things that has been damaging the environment and, and shifting to a more regenerative system, or it could happen that essentially everybody says, "Oh, you know, all these sort of big food companies now are on board with quote unquote climate action mm. because they have to be," and it can it could just end up being a moment where they say they're going to do things and they don't and everybody forgets about it and we, you know, mm. don't, and we let it get away. And, mm-hmm. and so I think um what my focus has been on is just really paying attention to um commitments companies are making and where this, this money is, this government money is going and just really staying on top of like, is this funding and all this talk, is it really having an impact on the ground and and what, what does that look like? And it's so far, it's been kind of early to know, but going forward, we're going to be really following that. Like for instance, with the climate smart commodities grants, like, you know, those billions and millions of dollars that are just being, the contracts were just signed within the last few months. And so in the coming months and probably years, I'm going to be, trying to pay attention to like, okay, well, all this money went to this grant and Tyson was involved and this person was involved and and what happened? Did it, did, did it, did we figure out a way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from meat production or not? And who, who paid for it? And so, so that's, I think, um, one of my, one of my focuses going forward,
0: Awesome. Well, I hope you'll update us at some point with what's happening with biochar and agroforestry as well. (laughs) Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We've been listening to Senior Staff Reporter for Civil Eats, Lisa Held. Thank you for joining us today at Eat, Drink, Think. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your local Edible magazine. You can find show notes for today's episode at EdibleCommunities.com.